0: Julian Birkinshaw is Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the London Business School, where I studied. He is a fellow of the British Academy, the Strategic Management Society, and the American Academy of Management. He's recognized as a thought leader on the impact of digital technologies on strategy and organization of established companies, for example, such topics as digital disruption, agile working, corporate entrepreneurship, business model innovation, and management innovation. He's the author of 15 books, including Mind Tools for Managers, Reinventing Management, and Fast Forward, among others, as well as over 100 articles. He is currently ranked as one of the thinkers 50 top thought leaders in the field of management and is regularly quoted in international media outlets, including CNN, BBC, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The Huffington Post, and The Times. He is a regular keynote speaker and a consultant to many large companies such as BP, Dell Technologies, among others, I got to meet Julian at an innovation conference in Azerbaijan at which we were both speaking and having read much of his work was thrilled to get a chance to have him join us on the Outthinkers podcast. In this episode, he shares why digital disruption is overrated, how incumbent organizations should be thinking about reacting to disruptive attackers. And he tells us about what the implications of those insights are to the future of Tesla. And and the electric vehicle industry. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian Birkinshaw. Julian, thank you so much for spending the time with us and for being here with us. You're welcome. Great to have you. I'd love the audience to get to know you a little bit personally. So if you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that.
1: That I am obsessive about getting a little bit of exercise every day, whether that's running or swimming or biking or whatever. I try to find a way of fitting it in whatever I'm doing.
0: So I asked this question of every guest and everyone has been an expert in strategy and I've never gotten the same answer. So I'd love to know what your answer to this question is. What is your definition of strategy?
1: The one I focus on when I'm talking to Chief strategy officers, executives in general, is the notion of strategy is difficult choices. I try to make the point that it's so easy to not make choices, to be all things to all people, to just say yes to you know, a bit of business over here, a bit of business over there. But the essence of strategy is trade-offs and choices amongst a number of interesting options. And that's a kind of classical view I appreciate. I think Michael Porter can claim some credit for that. But it does sharpen up your discussion a lot about what you're doing because 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 it
0: requires you to say what it is that you're not doing. So then the strategy, it sounds like it must extend beyond business.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, you can do that at many levels of analysis. The standard way of doing it, obviously, is to say, what is the strategy for your business unit, your operation? But I think there's a strategy for life. I think there's a strategy for a particular unit. If you lead a team, I mean, you absolutely can apply that sort of way of looking at the world to whatever entity it is that you're focusing on. So it's quite a portable concept in that respect.
0: That makes sense. Or even deciding whether you're going to run before the speech or after the speech, bring your shoes or not.
1: (laughs) That's right. Where do you fit it in? And there's tensions and choices in
0: all of these things. That's for sure. That's great. So what got you interested in strategy?
1: all the way back through my going to university and I did my first degree in geology, actually, which wasn't anything to do with business. And That was the typical British thing of you do a degree in whatever subjects you studied and enjoyed at high school. I quickly figured out there was no career in geology for me. And somehow business got exciting and interesting. So I went off and did an MBA. And that's the point where it all crystallized for me because I just fell in love with the stories of companies which spectacularly succeeded. And then the other ones, of course, which fell from grace and where it all fell apart. Part. And so that became my interest, and thus the subject of my PhD. I did in Canada back in the early nineties. Ultimately, the PhD topic was the Canadian subsidiaries of U.S. multinationals who were trying to figure out their strategy. And it goes back to our earlier conversation. I mean, a big multinational like GE or Monsanto or Hewlett-Packard, they have their strategy, but the Canadian subsidiary has to figure out its place in the world. And they were being wiped out because of free trade, the original free trade agreement in the early 90s. So they had to figure out a way of carving out an identity for themselves, not just in the marketplace, but within the parent company, within the multinational that they were part of. So that was the doctoral thesis. It was really about the strategy of of a foreign-owned subsidiary.
0: What did that research lead to? It led
1: actually quite linearly to my entire career because I picked up on the fact that some of these subsidiary companies were incredibly entrepreneurial. They had leaders who said, I'm not just going to wait until they give me a manufacturing mandate. I'm going to go and create my own opportunities. I'm going to grab opportunities. I'm going to proactively sell this Canadian operation to the parent company in St. Louis or New York or whatever. And on the basis of that, I'm going to build up what we're doing and I'm going to create a successful operation. So this idea that ultimately any big company has a bunch of corporate entrepreneurs in them who are pushing initiatives to try to push against the tide of bureaucracy, push into new emerging marketplaces. That became kind of the guiding light for everything I've done.
0: Yeah, because you've done a lot of work in ambidextrous organizations and management innovation. Can you talk a little bit about those two? Yeah,
1: for sure. So ambidextrous Dexterity is being able to use your left and your right hands. In business terms, it means being able to deliver on today's results whilst also looking to create the new thing, exploiting whilst exploring. And if you think about it, that's, of course, the essence of most big companies' challenge, which is they've got the expectations from the market about what results they're going to create. But they know that if they don't actually have a point of view on what's coming next, they will gradually find their way into oblivion. So, ambidexterity is about organizationally. At a corporate level, how do you manage that tension? How do you get some people doing the entrepreneurial stuff while other people are cranking away at delivering results? So that's the concept of ambidexterity. And then this other concept, which I've become well known from amongst academic circles, is we call it management innovation. This is me working with Gary Hamill, who's quite well known, I suspect, to some of your listeners. And we all know what product innovation is. Management innovation is literally coming up with new ways of working. And this is coming up with, for example, new compensation systems. New structural models, new ways of managing teams. So agile, the big trend towards agile these days, for example, is a great example of a management innovation, a new way of working that enables people just essentially create high levels of productivity and performance. And the trouble with management innovation is that it's really important, but it's actually quite difficult to do because it's so easy just to slip back into doing things the way you've always done them. In other words, you know, going back to bureaucracy, going back to hierarchical command and control methods. We're always pushing against all that stuff. And so a lot of that research that I've done is about helping companies to create new ways of working that enable greater productivity, greater levels of engagement and so forth.
0: So it seems that the frame of how we manage ourselves to achieve our objectives and make our strategic choices has evolved. I
1: mean, you've got this classical challenge, which is that traditional hierarchical top down methods work okay as long as what you're trying to do is just deliver a standard product a million times. This has now been in the conversation for decades. But as we move away from efficiency and quality as the narrow definition of performance to innovation and agility and purpose, we need people. To take more initiative, we need to find ways of liberating and harnessing their talents. So, this sort of push away from bureaucratic top down management I mean, as I say, we've been kicking it around as a concept for my lifetime and probably before. And yet, it's really only since the digital revolution of the last 20 years that it's actually been possible. And I think that's really important, which is why things like Agile have really taken off, because it's only since the internet that we've been able to share information seamlessly, transparently across huge swathes of an organization and indeed beyond the organization, which allows people to coordinate in real time, take initiative based on the information that's available to everybody. So it feels to me as though the internet, the digital revolution has allowed us to actually create these organizational and management innovations, which we have hypothesized about perhaps in the 70s and 80s, but couldn't do at that point. And that for me is the sort of sea change in organizing that we are kind of living through right now. So the concepts have been around forever, but the ability to do it has not. So a lot of my work is about trying to embed the methods, which we see in quite a lot of these born digital companies on the West Coast, in mainstream traditional organizations. They say that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but actually, I'm not sure that's true. I think a lot of big and companies, big established companies are picking up and figuring out ways of using these sort of management
0: methods that the likes of Google and Netflix and Spotify created. So it seems sort of the narrative has been, hey, the old dog can't learn the new tricks. The incumbent can't become agile. You need a small organization to be built, to be digital native, to be agile native. But what I understand is that in your research, you found that actually the established organizations can learn to dance.
1: They can. And there's a few well-known examples out there. A lot of people talk about this Chinese company, H-A-I-E-R, is a well-known example of one that's really pushed business units down to the lowest possible number of people, but actually, in some ways, those specific examples miss the bigger point, which is that what we're seeing all the big companies out there doing now is getting smarter about delayering and creating these agile teams across not just their IT organisations, but across huge swathes of the company. A company I've done a lot of work with is this Italian utility company called Nel. E N E L. And no one would say about them, look, wow, they're a really cool, exciting company. But you just look at their performance over the last 20 years and you look at their productivity and their growth and their stock market value. And I know from experience, under the hood as it were, they have systematically digitized everything. They've digitized their customer service operations, their factories, their information technology operations have all been put onto the cloud. They've simplified them, they've restructured them, they've pushed authority closer to the action. You know, None of this is sort of rocket science, but it does take commitment and time and leadership to embed it across an organization. It's not a sexy story, but that's actually the transformation that a lot of big companies are
0: going through. Well, it's interesting that you also look at the macro level. There's that famous InnoCite graph of the survival rate of S&P 500s and that it's just gone down and down and down. But actually, if you look at the macro level, tell us what you found.
1: So as you say, the InnoCite graph is the S&P 500 and it looks at essentially how long those companies stay in the S&P 500. And the answer is there's been more churn in recent years. I took a look at the same data actually I used the Fortune 500 for various reasons not the S&P 500. And the question I asked was how many of last year's Fortune 500 did not exist at all in any shape or form 25 years ago. So I took 1995 as my start date just cuz that's when the internet really took off. That's when the commercial internet became a thing. So when I ask my executives, they'll typically say maybe it's 1 or 200 or something like that. The answer is 17, 1-7. Seven. There are only 17 companies in, yes, last year's Fortune 500 that did not exist. And it's the ones we know. It's the Googles and the Netflix and the Facebooks and the Metas, rather, and the Amazons. But the point is there are only 17 of them. And the other 483 companies are either the big established companies who have been with us forever, or it's ones which have gradually grown into the Fortune 500. And then there's one or two spin-offs. Companies like Mondelez, which are spun out of Kraft Heinz, which is technically new, but is in fact really very old. And so for me, that is an alternative way of looking at what's happened. And my interpretation of that is yes, we see digital transformation. We see these big trillion dollar companies who are absolutely changing huge swathes of the economy. But the bit of the economy that we don't talk about, which is actually the bulk of it, is largely undisrupted. There are huge sectors, industrial products, aerospace, many consumer good sectors, even healthcare, even financial services, where in fact, you do see the old incumbents continuing to dominate in ways that we often don't talk about. And for me, that is a huge story because, of course, behind that story, you see a lot of these companies working very hard, getting smarter, figuring out ways to either disrupt themselves or just to become leaner and more efficient. Mm.
0: So if we put ourselves now that insight into the minds of a head of strategy from an incumbent, what are the implications for that head of strategy? What does that person do?
1: So the starting point is dead simple. Next time somebody says, there's an emerging technology coming along
0: that is going to
1: disrupt us. The first point is be skeptical, be cautious and thoughtful about what exactly that technology is and how dangerous it is. And then secondly, even if you are thinking, I've got to fight back, I've got to take them on at their own game, I've got to fight fire with fire. Realise that that's just one of three or four different strategies that you have got that you can play with, and in fact, as I've been looking across many industries over the last 20 years, the most common strategy from the incumbent is not to fight back directly. It is actually to double down on their existing source of strength. So the classic example is Disney. Disney did not get into movie streaming when Netflix came along. Disney bought out Lucasfilms and Marvel and Pixar and so forth. It doubled down on making movies. And it's only when it became quite clear how streaming was going to play out, this was now, what, five years ago, rather than 15 years ago, that they lastly decided, OK, we've got to get into streaming ourselves through Disney Plus. for The first decade of Netflix's life, Disney was just doubling down on great movie content. I mean, obviously Netflix has succeeded enormously, but Disney is an absolute force to be reckoned with because in some ways they deliberately took their time to figure out the right way forward. So for me, the strategy officer has to take a broad view about how they should be responding when faced with emerging
0: technologies. I'm just imagining there are kind of these phases. First is, what we're doing is going to work, is fine. And then Netflix appears, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And the next phase is, oh, let's just copy Netflix and copy their model, which is in a way to disrupt yourself. Then that fourth phase is doing it our way or something like that. That's right.
1: I think that's right. And I'm saying that the third and fourth phases, I mean, there are occasions when a technology changes things really quickly, but they're few and far between. In most cases, you've got time to figure out that third and fourth phases. And indeed, you know, in the Disney example, to figure out, Figure out your own way of doing streaming rather than to say, oh, my gosh, we've got to copy what these guys are doing. So you're seeing this in automotive right now. Obviously, Tesla is the Netflix of automotive, but you're seeing the Volkswagens and the BMWs and so forth. And Toyota, for that matter, taking stock. They've got time. The transition to electric engines is actually taking quite a few years, if you think about it. And they're taking the time to get it right. Now, again, Tesla will succeed. There's no question about it. But equally, there's every reason to be confident that the big automotive companies are going to find a way through this because they've got huge assets which will continue to be valuable throughout this whole transitional period. And they are going to find their own alternative ways of building ultimately battery cars and fuel cell cars and autonomous vehicles without just headlong kind of copying the Tesla approach.
0: I have so many questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. Do you think that Tesla is aware that the Toyota GM, from the beginning, they knew that they were, you know, maybe they were inspiring them? And are they going to try to profit from the transition to electric or are they going to try to carve out a share of that market? The
1: way I see it is that Tesla, as we know, is worth a trillion dollars. The next one is worth maybe 200 billion. I think Toyota is all Volkswagen. And yet Toyota and Volkswagen have literally 10 times more sales than Tesla. And they are spending 10 times as much on R&D than Tesla. So if you look at the automotive industry, there's no doubt in my mind that the big traditional guys are going to catch up because they've got huge skills in manufacturing and distributing at scale, which Tesla is still trying to learn. Now, that doesn't mean that Tesla will fail because Elon Musk, like Steve Jobs before him, there's always going to be some new trick out there that he potentially is going to be able to play. But if you just look at the market for battery-powered electric vehicles, I am in no doubt that you know 10 years from now, there will be six or seven major players, of which Tesla will be but these other guys will have figured out their own space within that because this is not like the world of Google and Facebook. We need to make things at scale and there are diminishing returns to scale in manufacturing anything which there are not when you're simply creating an intangible service.
0: Yes. So many places we could go, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So my last double question is, what are you working on now? And how can people learn from you and follow you and connect with you? Thanks. I mean, my most
1: recent book is three years old now. It was called
0: Fast Forward with a Swedish guy called Jonas Riddastrola.
1: And that was all about these organizational innovations, how we create less bureaucratic systems and structures. I'm now currently working on a new book and a Harvard Business Review article just came out called How Incumbents Survive and Thrive. And. the book will build on that it'll be all about what we've been talking about in some ways which is the the strategies that traditional established companies are using to adapt to these changing times and really nailing this point that there's much less disruption out there than we're often led to believe I mean I'm not saying disruption is a myth I'm saying that it's completely overplayed and that's good news for traditional established companies so there's going to be a bunch of blogs and articles coming out and then a book hopefully next year.
0: And so that would be the best way for people to follow you, So to look out for you on HBR,
1: LinkedIn is my usual blog post, but sometimes on Harvard as
0: well. Great. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for spending the time and for the work that you do. It's been great to get to know you. Perfect. Thanks, Kai. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.